Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. On today's episode, we will be reviewing A Distant Plane, but first, I'm joined by Greg to talk about what we've been playing. Yeah, and what we've been playing is some Zombicide. I'm sure many, I'm sure some of you have noticed that we've been streaming Zombicide Black Plague with a couple of our friends. We're playing through the core rulebook scenarios, and then if we're still in, you know, enjoying it, if you all are still enjoying yeah. it, we're uh, going to play through the Wolfsburg scenarios as well. But so by the time this is released, we'll have played two sessions of that. And it's been very interesting. To say the least. I mean, we had our first scenario, so it was the first quest. So we didn't start with quest zero, which is the intro quest, because we've already played it. And so for the first quest, it was, well, it was pretty fun. I, I enjoyed it. We started, like, we had to learn a little bit about our characters and all that. We had to find the laboratory or whatever within these the map that they had already set up. And all the while, like, trying to avoid and then kill the Abomination. Right. Because we, we spawned the Abomination on, like, turn two, turn three. Something really, really early. Yep. Which meant we basically just had to kite the thing around the room yep. for, you know, however long it took us to beat the game. Because in the base game, there is no weapon... There's no source of damage, really, that can kill the Abomination except for Dragon Bile. Exactly. Dragon's Fire is the one thing that can kill it. So that's what we were looking for the entire game as we were going through and like trying to kite it away. Not only that, but our, our very beginning on this game was not the best. So It took us a while to get started, yeah. I think I went first or something like that, and I just ran up to the first door, knocked it open, and there was a fatty. Yep. And it was just like, we don't have anything that does two damage to kill this fatty. So, about face, and the other way. To the other door. Yeah. And then the second turn, boom, there's a necro. <laughs> or I think it may have been... Well, it wasn't It wasn't in the door, but it did spawn pretty shortly after. Yeah, it, it was like the next phase. It was like, oh, there's a necromancer. All right. So... We had that kind of start, and then we were trying to, you know, get the items, and that took us a while, and we had to go into one of the vaults in order to even get something, and then once that happened, though, it started being a little bit more smooth sailing, because we gave our own necromantic wizard, uh, played by one of our friends, a a spell called, was it Inferno? Inferno, yeah. Yeah. And that did a ton of damage. Yeah. He just demolished from that point forward we had lots of big spawns early on but we also got into the vault pretty quickly and honestly that particular vault item was way more useful than the orcish crossbow which we could have gotten yeah because in his hands he was able to kill at least four zombies a turn yes and you know that includes everything that's weaker than an abomination he was just you know and so he gained experience really fast he was dealing just bought tons of damage and so pretty much from that point on no matter how many zombies there were we were able to deal with them because we just put him and our archer and another of our friends who was sort of like the berserker melee type of character who got an early greatsword that was another thing was really good for him we just put them in a position to deal a bunch of damage and then you and I sort of soaked damage. You know, my character has regeneration. My character, character did nothing. Your character sort of kited around. You opened a lot of doors. 
You you starting with that axe, man. That axe, though. Yeah, yeah. They keep trying to like convince me that my character is all right when I only hit a single zombie during the entire game. Um, that has more to do with the dice than the character. I am convinced. Admittedly, yeah, you could probably pick a stronger character, but. Yeah. Having an axe in the early game was very, very useful. You allowed us to get in to the places which got us the items which let us turn our wizard into a, like, just machine of destruction. So you enabled that entire thing. It was a little bit of an enabler. And I did find the uh, the torch at the very end. You did. You did. Um, I found the torch at the very end, and then I got myself into position to throw the torch, and then Greg, uh, Greg's character ran up, took the torch, and threw it. I, d- I did, yeah. And then the two of, of us ended with the same amount of experience, which was 16. Yeah, we were in the yellow. Yes. We didn't even make it to level 3, effectively. Yeah. And the our, wizard. our wizard had almost lapped us. No, he did. Did he lap? I thought he only made it into the yellow on his second time around. I thought he got all the way to, to us. Or Either it way, was somewhere close. He was really, really close. He killed, I think we tabulated it, he killed like 58 zombies. Yes. Just by himself. Yep. In that game. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. After I played the the tutorial scenario, if you had said to me, like, hey, there's a lot of zombies in this, future friend of yours is going to kill 58 zombies in a single game, I'd been like, uh, no, that's not how this game works. You're supposed yeah. to keep it balanced. Yeah. If one player gets 58 zombies, then the other players are going to die. Well, no. <laughs> We proved that wrong. <laughs> Though, to be fair, we did have, at the very end, three different characters that were in the red. Right. Yeah, it was just it was just us. Yeah, it was just the two of us little Which, I mean, honestly, it worked out okay. You know? Well, the two of us were left in the yellow. We didn't even get the orange. Right. Which, I mean, from, from a sort of balanced perspective, from a fun perspective, mm-hmm. that was a little bit of a letdown. You yeah. know, I very much would have liked to have gotten some of my orange abilities, my red abilities. You know, but I... I was happy with my role. I was soaking damage. I was defending. You were doing. You were was doing your role pretty well. Yeah. So I'm yeah. excited for our next game, which will be tomorrow yes. or yesterday, if you're listening to this. Yes. I'm excited to see what kind of you know. I am a wall. Do not pass. Shenanigans yep. I can get up to. Yeah, I'm really curious to see because at the moment, the games of Zombicide that I've played so far, especially by the end game, they've seen seemed almost too easy. Yeah. So yeah. I'm very, very curious to see how this week and next week goes in order to see whether or not it's just like this as a game, that it's too easy and it necessitates the addition of the other special enemies and things like that, or if it's just them ramping up. Yeah. So. And I, I suspect it's a little bit of the, the latter. I suspect that mm-hmm. each of the scenarios has a sort of tipping point. And scenario one, being scenario one, reaches its tipping point relatively early. Yeah. Um, but obviously, we'll have to play them through and see how it goes. Exactly. So definitely check that out. We are on both Twitch and YouTube for that. So yes, it's great fun. Please join us. We're very, very goofy, and we hope that you tune in to enjoy our antics. Yep. There we go. But we've been playing a few other games, too. Um, we have. Uh, it was my birthday recently, and uh, we had some people over to Jacob's because my apartment is very tiny and not good for entertaining. We, you know, kind of just hung out, played some Between Two Cities, which was a lot of fun. Some people had never played it before. Yeah. And they they really enjoyed it because it's, you know, a game that can sit 
up to seven people mm-hmm. while still being a little bit more of a tactical actual like board game rather than just a exactly social... it's not just a party game it's yeah. not a social deduction game like there's you know tile laying involved and strategy and mm-hmm. a game like that that can seat a lot of people had a lot of appeal yes. um so it was really gratifying because that's one of my favorite games yeah it was really gratifying to see a lot of our friends enjoying that as well and then we played a couple rounds of bards dispense profanity after that because of course if you take cards against humanity and combine it with shakespeare it's just strictly better yeah yeah exactly so that's always a fun game i always enjoy playing that but we also got to play a little bit of tiny epic galaxies yes we did you got the new expansion i did beyond the black so it adds some really cool mechanics especially the captains yeah yeah they were really really cool it sort of adds not just the ability to get a new captain but the ability to get sort of four new special ship pieces Mm -hmm. each one of which can support sort of a different role you've got one that Although there's no inherent difference, the captains that can pilot that ship are generally geared towards acquiring resources. You've mm-hmm. got one that's really good at exploration. You've got one that's really good at advancing on a, a diplomatic or an economic track. So there's these sort of specializations that you can get that I think really flesh out the game in a lot of successful ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I really enjoyed it. I thought the uh, the new mechanics really added to the game without making it too much more complex. And actually... One of the things that I brought up is that they even accentuated some of the less used mechanics within the game. Because there are things like in Tiny Epic Galaxies normally, you know, you can land on a planet to get and use its ability. But a lot of times you don't really want to waste a ship doing that because then you can't colonize it from there. So the fact that you have to move your ships off of the exploration area and then back before they can explore again. If you have a ship that's really good at exploring... You want to keep doing that, moving it there and back, and might as well move it to somewhere and use the ability of that planet and then move it back rather than just moving it back to your galaxy or something like that. Yeah, very well designed. Introduces new elements, highlights some of the underused older elements. Very successful, very fun. Highly encourage everyone to check it out. Yeah, I completely agree. And well, that has been a look at what we've been playing. We come now to our review of A Distant Plane, Insurgency in Afghanistan. Full disclosure, this is not a subject that either Jacob or I historically are very informed about. We are not international relations majors. We don't know a lot about the geopolitical issues involved in the war in Afghanistan. We don't know a lot of those issues. So we apologize in advance if there's anything you know, that we talk about, that we say, that maybe misrepresents the issue. But... This is a game review, so we're going to come at it from this angle, talk about the mechanics, and how we felt playing it. Exactly. So, A Distant Plane is, as it says, a game about the war in Afghanistan starting in 2003. And this is pretty much, in the game, uh, you have... No, sorry. It's hard to talk about. Yeah. It's, it's a very difficult game to talk about, yeah. just because there is so much involved in it that defies sort of categorization you know it's a war game which is already outside of our normal purview but it's more than that too it's about this the tension and the relationships and some of the sort of strange bedfellows that are created by this situation where you have people who are nominal allies working together but also working against each other yeah Um, and the game's structure really reinforces that 
Yeah, so we're going to start this review with just the turn structure of the game. So the way it works is that only two players can get actions during each turn. The order in which players can get those actions or are allowed to choose whether or not to take an action is determined by the event cards that come up at the beginning of each game or each phase. When the event card comes up, it shows at the top the order of when people go. And the cool part here is that they show two different event cards. You have the event card that is in play and then the event card that is coming up. So you have the chance to see what's coming up next and then pass in order to take advantage of that. So the way that it works is that if you are the first person to choose and don't pass and you want to take an action, you can do a few different things. First, you can take the event card. If you take the event card, the other person can take a full action. They can do anything that they want other than taking the event card. The event cards usually have some kind of very either beneficial event to a certain faction or something detrimental to a different faction or usually one of both. So it can be good for the Taliban, but not so good for the coalition or other way around. And so both the Taliban and the coalition then have incentive to take that card because if they do, they either prevent the bad thing from happening to them or they allow the bad thing to happen to the opponent. If you do not take the card, you can then do a full operation as it's called. So the full operation is when you get to do an operation, so you just get to do some actions as in as many places, mostly as you want. There are some that are a little bit more limited, but right. most of them let you go to as many places as you want as long as you have the resources to pay for it. And then you also get to use one of your special abilities. And these are unique per each faction and can be extremely powerful and extremely useful in getting to the goals of that, that faction. If you take the full operation, the second player to go, who does not pass, will be able to either take a limited operation or take the event card. So the event card is still in play and you can still take it. The last type of action that you can take is the starting off with the limited operation. So if you go ahead and start with the limited operation and that in terms of what that means is that you don't get a special action. It also means you can only perform the action, whichever action that you take in one territory. Yes. So if you take the limited operation, that prevents the other player to go, who goes from taking the event card. So you don't get a special action, but then again, you're also still limiting the possibilities for the players that are coming up. Right. So there's a lot of you know tactics that go into, okay, this event isn't necessarily good for me, but it would be really good for my opponent. So do I take the hit, take the limited op, just do a little bit of something in order to deny that to them? Or do I say, you know what, the opportunity cost is too high, I'm going to take the full op, I'm going to take a special uh, special ability, and then I'll just deal with the repercussions of the event, which just adds this extra layer of tactical depth that I think is really very compelling. Yeah. But yeah, so that's a, a quick summary of the turn structure. Once two players have gone, they are moved to what's called ineligible, which is they do not get even the opportunity to act next round, whereas the other two players either move from ineligible to now eligible, or if they didn't act at all, they just stay there. 
and then play continues until you reach the end of the game, basically. But we've talked a lot about sort of how the game works, but we haven't described who sort of the actors are, who's in play. So in a distant plane, there are four factions. You have the coalition, which represents mostly the Americans, but also their allies, the British, NATO, things like Mm -hmm. that. And you have the Afghan government. The two of those factions together comprise the counterinsurgent forces. Then you have the insurgent forces, who are the native Afghan warlords and the Taliban. Mm -hmm. Um, Both have competing goals, but are generally resistant to the central authority of the counterinsurgent forces. And each of those factions has a different goal. And this is one of the things that I think makes the game so compelling is that it's not, okay, let's race to see who gets the most points or even who controls the most territory objectively. It's this faction has this very specific, very unique goal, and they have to try to achieve it. And each of those is different, and some of them are complementary, yeah. but not in ways that's going to make permanent alliances work. Mm-hmm. So to describe specifically what those are, the coalition wants to have what's called support represented amongst a certain amount of population in the game. Each territory, uh, excuse me, each province has a population value. If enough of the population support the Afghan government, America is like, yes, this is great. But they also want to make sure that enough of their troops are not in Afghanistan. They want to be in a separate area of the board represented as available, which means they're at home in the USA. And this makes a lot of sense. They go in, they perform their sort of nation-building activities, and then they get out. And historically, as I understand it, that's exactly what the U.S. wanted to do. So that's the coalition's goal. Yep. Then you have the government. Now, the government is... Nominally an ally of the coalition because they do not want, you know, insurgency or anything like that within their their borders. They don't want Taliban or, you know, the warlords controlling other things. But that's not their main goal. Their main goal is to have territories that are controlled. So they don't really care as much about the support. They want patronage and control. So patronage is, you know, they consume support to get patronage and that that just like is a track that uh, I don't know exactly what it represents. Probably like payments or like, you know, from warlords or from other factions that like are patronage towards the government. Yeah. Essentially you're siphoning. uh, There's another tracker called aid, which represents the amount of money that you're getting from foreign governments. And each time that you perform a patronage action, you siphon some of that aid into the patronage tracker just to sort of represent bribes, nepotism, a lot of some of what Western observers identified as the corrupt elements within the Afghan government that was being supported by the -hmm. coalition. Yeah, so you're trying to get that up as well as getting enough territories controlled by the coalition and the government. So coin controlled, as they call it. So once you get a combination of that equal to a certain number of points... That would be the winning condition for the government. In very stark contrast to coin-controlled territories, the warlords want two goals. They want to have resources, which is sort of an abstract representation of money, which they do primarily by cultivating poppy and opium. And they want to have a minimum number of Afghan population uncontrolled. 
And uncontrolled is a mechanic that basically means no group has a majority in that province. It doesn't necessarily mean that there are no coin forces or no Taliban forces there. It just means that neither of those factions holds a majority of the forces. So playing the Warlords is very much about strategically placing your forces into places to tip the balance so that you're both subverting coalition and coin control of those territories while also not allowing the Taliban to exert central authority either. Yes. And speaking of which, Taliban is the last faction that, that is in, in the game. So the Taliban, they want two things. First of all, they want opposition to the government. So whereas the coalition wants support for the government, there's also the other end of that coin, which is opposition. Same thing for the Taliban. They want a certain population to be opposed. Now, along with that, they also want to have a certain number of bases on the board. So they want to have bases and opposition to the government. And once they get a certain combination of those two, they would win. So all of these things combine to create situations where on one turn or in one phase, it might be to the advantage of the government to go along with whatever it is that the coalition says, because the Taliban are threatening control over one of the provinces that has a pretty significant population in it. Government says, no, no, we want to keep those people under our control. Mm -hmm. But then the coalition rolls in, they perform what's called a civic action, rebuild buildings, kiss babies, all that sort of thing, generate support among the, the local population. Coalition says mission accomplished, but government says, no, oh, wait, hold on. You helped us shoo the Taliban out of here, but now this is our, our place to govern. We're going to do it how we want. They're going to consume that support token to generate patronage. And suddenly the coalition says, well, wait a minute, why did you do that? Maybe we should side with the warlords because the warlords are going to, you know, kind of take your attention away and, and keep you from subverting support. And mm -hmm. it's just this, this network, this web of alliances and backstabbing. And it's so rich. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, like we said at the very beginning, I don't know a lot of the history. I don't know a lot of the, you know, political science ramifications of this, but from a gameplay standpoint, it seems very, very well modeled to have four completely different goals and yet they never really feel out of sync. They feel like they're sort of exerting pressure on each other mm -hmm. in such a way that it holds the game up. I, I completely agree. They they do very well. It's almost a self-balancing mechanism where if one faction almost starts getting ahead, there are at least two others to oppose it. So if the government is getting ahead, like then... You know, the warlords don't want to control anyone, and the coalition doesn't want them consuming all the support. So both of those groups are going to be opposing the government. Versus, you know, if the Taliban is there, the, you know, the warlords might not really care too much, but at the same time, that's really against both the government and the coalition's point of view. Mm -hmm. And if the coalition is getting ahead, the Taliban and the government are both very much opposed to that because the government really wants that support and you know patronage and all that whereas the taliban really wants to oppose them so. right but yeah so the the richness of the goals and sort of the objectives that each faction has is a big part of the asymmetry that goes along with the game but then there are other ways that it's built into the actions that you can take so there's operations which we described and then also special abilities 
which can be added onto operations. Mm-hmm. And each of those are slightly different. So the coin forces have a shared list of abilities that they can perform. But in each case, you know, for the government faction and for the coalition, they're slightly different. They involve different costs. They involve different, you know, secondary opportunities. And it works to sort of make it so that you could describe it as a comparative advantage. The coalition has a comparative advantage in assaults. You know, they can, they're very, very effective at hunting down and taking out terrorists or guerrillas or insurgents, you know, whomever. Mm -hmm. But they have comparatively fewer units to do it with. So you kind of have to balance these sorts of competing, you know, one's good at assaults, one's good at trainings, those sorts of things. Plus, each one has unique special abilities that allow, you know, the Afghan government to get across the map very quickly with large numbers of troops, whereas the Americans get there much more precisely, but with fewer troops. So it's all a give and take, and the insurgents have this as well. The warlords and the Taliban share a basic set of operations, mm-hmm. and then each has unique special abilities that they can tack on to those operations that are sort of themed towards them. Um, Taliban have ambush, while the warlords have cultivate, suborn, things like that. Yeah. And another thing that is a really interesting mechanic is the underground insurgents. So... It seems like a very difficult thing to show, like, oh, there are insurgents here, but you don't know who they are. Because it's like, oh, you have pieces on the board here, there are a lot of them, why can't I kill them? So, they came up with a really clever uh, mechanic where, if the piece is flipped so that the indented, the nice shiny side is down, then the operative is underground. And this is when they can do certain events, like they can sabotage uh, things, they can incite terror and other things like that. And when they do, they reveal themselves. And when they are revealed, they can then be targeted by the coalition and the government forces in order to kill them. But the government and the coalition can also do things called sweeps, where they can go through and reveal those, depending on how many forces they put into the region. So it's interesting because it can you know, give the warlords and the Taliban both the ability to be in the same area as the, as the other forces, yet still be safe. So that's why you could have Taliban forces in Kabul, but the coalition can't do anything about it at a certain point until they sweep, until they like look right. for this stuff. Yeah, And it also creates a cost for the insurgents of their terror actions, so sabotages and other things like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very well modeled in ways that I probably wouldn't consider uh, if I were creating the game, but it just goes to show a lot of the thought that they put into it. Yeah. Um, all that said, as much as I've been gushing about this game, uh, no game is perfect, and this one has a few glaring flaws that I know Jacob, who played the Warlords in our game, especially ran into. So the first part would be the turn order randomness. Now... The Warlords, they play normally as a very slow burn faction as it is, but because of how you just take all the cards and shuffle them up and then split them into you know four or five piles, depending on the length of the game, you can go into a large number of cards in a row that the Warlords are always going last or second to last and will not be able to use their full operation and their special abilities. So I ran into that in, in the first game that we played where 
pretty much the entire game, there was only one card that came up that I was first on the, on the turn order. And that was really frustrating because that meant that I couldn't use any of my special abilities. I had to keep passing and I had to keep hoping that, you know, someone took the event card so that I could use those. Or, you know, using my limited abilities, which weren't really doing much for me because of the fact that I wasn't really in conflict with anyone at the time. So that turn order randomness can be good and it's definitely a smart way of doing it but the cards could be distributed a little bit better based on maybe you know beginning half of the game latter half of the game something along those lines right um one of the other areas in which the game sorts of sort of struggles is that there's a surprisingly large number of corner cases where rules are in conflict and the descriptions provided in the rulebook don't necessarily clarify a lot of that so one example that we ran into in our game was there are event cards called capabilities where if one faction or the other gets them they have permanent impact on the gameplay of either the coalition or the taliban there are no government and there are no warlord capabilities but so the coalition got access to two different capabilities that modified their special ability airstrike one of which said your airstrike can hit two targets per space instead of one, and one of which said one airstrike per turn into Pakistan, which is represented in the corner of the map as a place that no faction except the Taliban can go, but which can be airstruck. But this card said that one airstrike per turn into Pakistan doesn't adjust their attitude, which means it doesn't give benefits to the Taliban. There was a lot of ambiguity in the way these were written because on the one hand, it said one airstrike per turn, but it didn't say target piece, it didn't say target space. There was just a lot of questions about, okay, well, how many targets can I remove from the board while still not alerting Pakistan? And the surprisingly thick rulebook was actually very quiet on the subject. They had lots of really interesting historical background information, which... I would love to read through sometime, but it just seems like an opportunity that they could have used to clarify a lot of the rules interactions rather than provide that context. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, and, and the last part that I would say is a little bit lacking is the fact that there are territories on there that are pretty much useless. Uh, they have zero population, and though I understand that it models the country of Afghanistan well enough, like it, those areas are pretty much empty. There aren't really that many people. As a game, I think that having those territories there really just takes away from it rather than adding anything because those territories are now just dead, dead space in between. It would be nicer for me if all the territories went up by one. So the, the, I think Kabul had three, make it four, three, two, and then have the zeros into ones. And that way, at least there's some value, even if it's minimal, for those territories. And like, you, know, you can have more of a spread out strategy, things like that. So I think that that is another part that I just didn't really like about the game. All in all, though, time for just a straight up review. Jacob, what do you give it? I'm going to give it a play it with a caveat. This is a long game. The short game that we played was five hours long. Yeah. So if you enjoy these types of games, like a geopolitical, like 
brain burny kind of game where you're jockeying around for position with other people, this is a must play for sure. I really did enjoy it, even if it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. This is a game that I did quite enjoy. But if you can't sit still past an hour and a half kind of board game, don't come near this. <laughs> right. I'm going to agree on pretty much all counts. Those who are frequent listeners will know that I'm not a huge fan of war games either, but this one was really something else. I very much enjoyed playing it, but it is something because of the length, because of the complexity, that's going to be very difficult to bring to table on a consistent basis unless you know that you have a group who goes in for that sort of thing. So for the average consumer, I'm going to say play it. More power to you if you decide to buy it. Exactly. Now let's talk about a few games that uh, would be similar to this one or that you would like or that have similar mechanics. Let's start with Innis. Now Innis is a game that we reviewed on, on our podcast before and it is almost in a way a little bit of a simplified version of this in that you have the population management, the territory control, and uh, you have to control certain kinds of objectives. There is no real different objective per faction in Innis, but it's still, you know, someone could be going for one objective while someone else could be going for a different one. And just the whole territory control and population control, which you don't see very often, is quite important there. And if you like a distant plane and you'd like something a little bit lighter, Innis is definitely a good game for that. And one other game that you if you enjoyed, might want to check out A Distant Plane or vice versa, is Twilight Struggle. Full disclosure, I have not played Twilight Struggle, neither has Jacob. I've seen it played, I've heard it talked about, but if you really enjoy the complex maneuvering, the sort of you move first, no you move first, that goes along with a game about the Cold War, but you've always wanted it with a few more people, check out A Distant Plane. You run into a lot of those sort of tense relationships, but the addition of two extra players, I think, makes it just a really compelling game. So, if you like Twilight Struggle, check out A Distant Plane. And there you have it. That's our review of A Distant Plane. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope you enjoyed our review. Washington tickets are on sale, as you've heard us say many times before. Washington will be the 9th and 10th of September. So head on over to WashingtonCon.com, pick up your tickets now. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be great special guests, opportunities to play games, you get to see us. It's going to be super, super fun. We very much hope to see you there. Please head over and buy some tickets. Also, if you haven't yet, check out our Zombicide videos. We stream live on Twitch and on YouTube, and we have VODs available for your viewing perusal. Plus, join us next time when we will be doing a spoiler-free review of Time Stories.